0: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
1: January 1933, New York City. It's the height of the public enemy era of gangsters, gunrunners, and bootleggers. Whilst the mafia crime of the 20s had consolidated into a slightly more stable situation at the end of the Castellamarese War of 1931, Every kind of person from across the U.S. sought to take advantage of the chaotic times. The Great Depression left many who had benefited from the extravagance of the Roaring Twenties destitute. And so, every man and his dog turned to less than legal sources of income. You may know of Bonnie and Clyde, the lovers turned armed robbers, infamously gunned down in the hail of bullets in the back roads of Louisiana. Or maybe Pretty Boy Floyd, the bank robber who burned mortgages to free the poor of their debts. And who could forget the man himself, John Dillinger. Public Enemy number 1. But today's suspects are not so high-minded. They're cruel and capricious, sure, but it's not so much the villains of the story that we care about, it's the victim. And it's not how they murdered that victim, it's how they didn't. So back to where we lay our scene. Tony Marino owns a speakeasy on 3rd Avenue, which runs from the Bronx down through Manhattan, prime territory, but it's not doing so hot. Speakeas is a ten a penny in this part of town. If you don't know, a speakeasy was an illicit bar that served alcohol at a time when it was illegal in the U.S. It was made legal again in 1934. Marino doesn't run the operation alone. Alongside him are Joseph Red Murphy, Francis Pasqua, Hershey Green, and Daniel Kreisberg. These men would later be dubbed the Murder Trust. Now see, the whole thing comes down to one man, the victim of their heinous series of crimes, Michael Malloy. Malloy was born in County Donegal in 1873 in Ireland, and had emigrated to the US at some point. Vague, I know, but we don't know much about Malloy. We know he was a firefighter at one point, but by 1933 he was a vagrant. Unemployed, homeless, an alcoholic. A rather unpopular bar fly at Marino's speakeasy. It's no small wonder they wanted him out of their bar, but to kill him to do so? Well, you see, there was another layer to their plans. Marino and the gang had convinced Malloy, in one of his many drunken stupors, to sign on to several lucrative life insurance policies. Under the name of Nicholas Malloy, Michael's brother, they stood to gain $3,500, in today's money just south of $70,000, should Malloy die in an unfortunate accident. Now here's the fiendishly clever part. They then gave Malloy unlimited credit at the bar. Perfect. He's an alcoholic with nothing to live for and no moderation. He'll drink himself to death and it'll be ruled accidental. We'll roll in the cash, says the murder trust. Simple, elegant, basically undetectable. What could go wrong? Well, the first night of the plan rolls around and they explain to Malloy his new unlimited bar credit. Naturally, he indulges and then overindulges. The gang expects to be collecting on the policy that very night. And then he just leaves. He goes home, well, not home, he doesn't have a home, but wherever he goes, and he comes back the next day and starts drinking again. Fine, says the murder trust, it's been a week and he's not dead yet despite drinking every patron together under the table every single night, he can't keep doing this forever. But not only does that seem to be the case, Malloy spends almost all of his waking hours in the speakeasy running them dry. If they don't nip this disturbing, if impressive, trend in the bud, soon there won't be any profit to be made from this venture. So they accelerate the process. They start adding increasing quantities of antifreeze to Molloy's alcohol before just replacing it entirely. Molloy doesn't seem to be particularly bothered by this. Perhaps he said something along the lines of, oh, this is quite a kick to it, lads. When that didn't work, they moved on to turpentine, which is a solvent made from distilled tree resin, wholly inedible by anyone's standards. Molloy knocks it back like it's a fine chardonnay. So they step it up again, their desperation increasing. Next comes the horse liniment, If you know what deep heat is or tiger balm, basically a heat rub for horses. The main ingredients of which tend to be methanol, poisonous, and petroleum, poisonous. Malloy puts it away like a fancy cocktail. Finally, rat poison. Now, not designed to kill humans, but by God, don't ingest it, whatever you do. It is to put it mildly, no bueno. They then started mixing all of those things together into a murderous cocktail, but Malloy drank it all undaunted. So they need to get creative. This guy can absorb seemingly any substance known to man. Okay, but he can't be impervious to everything. Now, Pasqua says, okay, I saw a guy die after eating some raw oysters soaked in whiskey. So we should give him some raw oysters, which by the way, are very dangerous. It can give you norovirus, vibrio and hepatitis A. But instead of soaking it in whiskey, let's soak it in more turpentine, wood alcohol. It'll make you violently sick and kill you because wood alcohol, which is methanol again, very poisonous. He." is fine. Malloy should have been clued in at this point into the men's dark intentions for him, but apparently he was as oblivious as they were incompetent. More food, again, this time to go with the drinks. A sandwich made of spoiled sardines, more rat poison, and carpet tacks. Yeah, carpet tacks, those sharp pins you use in home decor. Like everything else I've mentioned, thoroughly not edible. He scrans it down like it's a Philly cheesesteak. At this point, the numbers aren’t looking so good for the murder trust. The amount of money they’re projected to spend on killing Malloy is soon going to eclipse the amount they stand to make, and this is taking a very long time. They conclude that nothing they can feed Malloy will kill him, so they get serious, uh, more serious than they already are. They wait for him to pass out drunk and then carry him into a snowbank. In New York, in January, the temperature sits around the Balmy negative4 degrees Celsius at night. They then strip his breast and pour five gallons of cold water on top of him. Sure enough, Malloy returns the next day with a fantastical story to tell. He'll never guess what happened to me, guys. They found me in the snow with no shirt on. So they run him over with a cab. Or they pay someone to run him over with a cab, going 45 miles an hour. This puts Malloy in the hospital for three weeks with broken bones. For a time, they think, maybe we've done it. Maybe he's dead. But they find they can't collect on the insurance, and then sooner or later, again, shows up Mike Malloy, totally fine, ready to drink. By February 23rd, the gang was at their wits' end. They needed a solution. So they get Malloy as drunk as ever, they stick a hosepipe in his mouth, attach it to a gas line, and turn it on. Within an hour, Iron Mike was dead but as you may have realised, this kind of flew in the face of the initial plan whereby using Malloy's alcoholism to kill him would be undetectable. When they tried to cash in on the policy, the insurance company thought it was fishy. The official cause of death was pneumonia, but when the police heard rumours that the now legendarily resilient Iron Mike had died when he'd supposedly survived so many nights in the cold, they exhumed and autopsied the body. Thus it was that the murder trust were caught. Hershey Green got prison, but the other four were sent up the river to sing sing and got the electric chair within several months. So what's the point of this story? Well, many have heard and told and retold the story of the durable Mike Malloy, as it's often called, but he's not the only person in history to have such a legendary resilience. No, no, there are others whose appetites got them in a world of trouble. And to save time later, and in a bit of a switch up of our usual structure, we're going to tell you another one of those stories right now france 1772 a boy is born to a peasant family in rural lyon we don't know his real name but those who do know him will be instantly disgusted when we say his name Terari. he was an unusual person by his teenage years his appetite had grown to the extent that he could consume a quantity of beef weighing as much as he did in a single day obviously this kind of appetite wasn't sustainable for a peasant family so he moved on or was kicked out He roamed the French countryside with a band of thieves stealing food where he could, before gaining some notoriety as a freak show act. Tarare could eat anything that was given to him. Stones, cork, live animals. On one occasion in Paris, he bit off more than he could chew, and needed treatment in hospital for an intestinal blockage. Despite his titanic appetite, Tarare wasn't all that big. A hundred pounds, more or less, and slender in his build, with the exception of his eating. When he ate a full stomach, his body would distend in a manner most foul. When he was empty, his stomach skin would stretch to the extent that he could wrap it around himself. His mouth was wide, four inches from jaw to jaw fully open. His teeth were stained, lips paper-thin, and cheeks so stretchy he could fit a dozen eggs in his mouth at once. As for the rest of him i'll quote directly from wikipedia because i honestly cannot do a better job at surmising it but be warned it gets even worse from here on out so if you're eating while you listen to this maybe stop and come back to it later his body was hot to the touch and he sweated heavily he constantly had a foul body odor he was described as sinking to such degree that he could not be endured within the distance of 20 paces This smell would get noticeably worse after he had eaten. His eyes and cheeks would become bloodshot, a visible vapour would rise from his body and he would become lethargic, during which time he would belch noisily and his jaws would make swallowing motions. He had chronic diarrhoea, which was said to be, quote, "...fetid beyond all conception." Despite his large intake of food, he did not appear to either vomit excessively or to gain weight. Aside like from his eating habits, his contemporaries saw no apparent signs of mental illness or unusual behaviour in him, other than an apparently apathetic temperament with a complete lack of force and ideas. End quote. So, yeah, rather terrifying individual, but maybe not so devoid of ideas or motives. He joined the French Revolutionary Army at the outbreak of the War of the First Coalition under Napoleon. Suffice it to say, the rations were not nearly enough for him and he was admitted to military hospital with extreme exhaustion. Even after being put onto quadruple rations, he was still hungry and would eat anything he could find. Garbage, lying around, poultices and medicines, anything. This oddity was examined at the highest levels. Dr. Courville of the 9th Hussar Regiment was ordered to study the man alongside chief surgeon Pierre-Francois Percy. The experiments gave us an insight into a lot of the aforementioned bodily functions of Tarare. On one occasion, he ate a meal meant for over a dozen people. On another occasion, he ate and killed a live cat, drinking its blood like juice before eating it whole and regurgitating the fur and bones. Truly nauseating, but it gets stranger. You see, after examining the limits of his digestive capacity, the hospital staff carried out a little experiment on the military's orders. They had him eat a box with a message in it. Naturally, Tarari swallowed it whole and it passed through him undisturbed. This gave them the idea that he might be best placed as a spy delivering covert messages using his natural abilities. So he was sent to Prussia with a message for a captured general containing vital information. Or that's what they told him. In reality, the message said, please send a reply confirming you've got this message. If you have any information, send it over. Not exactly top priority. Moreover, Tarare was captured almost instantly by the Prussians. Not only could he not speak German, but a man who could not be endured in close quarters due to his overpowering odour and insatiable appetite would stand out just about anywhere. After being captured and finding out the message was useless, the Prussians decided to release him with a severe beating. He returned to France and decided to cure himself of his condition. Along with Dr. Percy, he tried everything. Laudanum, wine vinegar, tobacco pills. Nothing worked and his attempts at diets failed regularly. He would eat offal out of the gutter outside of butcher shops, fighting with stray dogs over scraps of meat. He would drink the blood of patients undergoing bloodletting, he even try to eat bodies in the hospital morgue. Despite not drawing the line at explicit cannibalism, the line would come soon. When a 14-month-old baby went missing in the hospital, everyone's eyes turned to Terari, and Percy was no longer willing or able to defend him. But Tarari would see Percy again. Four years later he came to him, begging for help, bedridden and weak. It was diagnosed as tuberculosis and within a few months Tarari was dead. The autopsy was as you would expect horrifying. Final content warning for this episode, you are warned. His gullet was abnormally wide. When his mouth was opened, doctors could see straight into his stomach by an engorged throat. His body was full of pus and abscesses. His liver and gallbladder were abnormally swollen, to say nothing of his stomach, which took up the plurality of his body cavity. So what's the deal with these two men? Men who could and frequently did eat anything. Two very different cases, to be sure. Mike Malloy was an alcoholic who arguably had an addictive need to eat, whereas Tarari's highly unusual body forced him to eat. Or perhaps not, Today on Demystified, second season of Human Mysteries, we look into the fact of the fiction behind people with iron stomachs. So those stories we told in the intro are equal parts horrifying, and in the most morbid possible way, entertaining. Wood alcohol, spoiled seafood, rat poison, carpet tacks, heat rub, live animals, human blood, stones, all things that would be to the average person's body and palate, totally inedible. I don't think anybody would be considered a piggy eater for turning down a fare of offal from a butcher's gutter or methanol watered down with antifreeze, but some people have the ability to eat anything and survive. Now, one phenomenon that isn't necessarily going to fall into the remit of today's episode, but will be discussed, is pica. Pica is a psychological disorder that causes one to eat things that are normally inedible. It's usually subcategorized into different groupings based on what you eat. Tell me what you eat, and I'll tell you who you are. Pagophagia is eating ice, for instance, xylophagia is eating paper, acophagia is eating sharp objects, etc. But they all fall under pica if it's a psychological compulsion. But having this condition doesn't guarantee an ability to cope with one's diet. Oftentimes, sufferers of pica have major and continuous digestive troubles. Plumbophagics, for instance, those afflicted with the desire to eat lead, have an obvious problem. Biker was listed in the DSM-5, which you may remember from last episode, as often being linked to mineral deficiencies. For example, historically, slaves in the American South often ate clay, which was at first considered a mental problem, but then found to contain compounds which are now used in things like kaopectate and peptobismol, the mineral kaolinite, which helps to treat dysentery. Of course, slaves didn't know that, they just thought, as did the others at the time, that eating clay could sometimes help, so those with poor diets were often compelled, for reasons they didn't understand, to eat clay. Anemia, low levels of adequate nutrition, poor education and mental health problems are all contributing factors to pica. Other suggested causes, alongside those, include social factors, people eating things for retention. So... With physical blocks to eating those objects, social conditioning and cognitive behavioural therapy are also suggested remedies for the condition. But the key takeaway here is that those who suffer from pica often also suffer from what they eat. Those who eat nails often suffer stomach lining tears. Very dangerous and very painful. Tarari once ate a whole eel, bones and all, and you need only Google a picture of what that looks like to see what that must have entailed. And Mike Malloy ate carpet tacks and came out pretty as a picture. We're looking at explanations for people with iron stomachs, people who had some drive or compulsion to eat anything and then backed it up with the ability to eat anything. So how can people eat anything? Well, perhaps a modern example might help us put things in a less exaggerated perspective. These stories from part one tended to have a little bit of build-up with them. Now, I don't know if it's because their country is linked to gastronomy, but another Frenchman comes in here, Monsieur Mange-Tout, the stage name of Michel Le Tito. Born in Grenoble in 1950, he started eating unusual things in his teens and became a performer in 1966. Lotito was diagnosed with pica, but alongside that he was also found to have had an abnormally tough stomach lining which protected him from all of the sharp things he ate, alongside an incredibly powerful digestive acid which helped him digest those things. A side effect of this, however, was that soft foods, foods that would for a normal person be easy to digest, actually made him very sick, like soft-boiled eggs and bananas. So, in actuality, to an extent, he had to eat things that were hard to digest because his stomach couldn't be geared to eat anything else. But maybe he didn't need to go as far as he did? And how far was that? Well, over his lifetime, he ate metals, glass, rubber, bicycles, shopping carts, television sets, and even, over the course of two years, a Cessna 150 aeroplane alongside a number of other usually inedible items. Despite these things being nearly universally poisonous to consume, in fact, eating glass in any capacity is extremely dangerous, he claimed to never suffer any ill effects. He'd eat about one kilogram of inedible substance a day, often cut up into small bite-sized chunks, and he would lubricate his throat with petroleum mineral oil and drink huge quantities of water to wash down the strange metals. Unlike Tarari, he apparently had no problems passing the things that he ate. Between 1959 and 1997, it's estimated he ate a combined nine tons of metal. He died of natural causes in 2007, at the age of 57. Young, for a modern era, but apparently it was unrelated to his eating habits. So there you go, a modern example of the condition studied by medical doctors. And what did we learn? Well, he did have pica. But it doesn't seem to me from the stories that Tarare or Malloy had that condition, sure... They ate weird things, but in Terari's case, it didn't seem as though he specifically chose to eat strange things because he wanted to eat them, it seemed more likely he ate them because there was no alternative. When presented with an ordinary meal prepared for 15 people, he ate the whole thing. It's not like he didn't want to eat normal food, he just often couldn't find it in sufficient quantities to sate his appetite. That being said, it does also seem that Terari wasn't put off by eating horrifying things, even going so far as to drink human blood and eat human flesh. So maybe he did have some compulsive element there? In Molloy's case, he was piss drunk the whole time. And that is a factor. When presented with fetid food, this man, who was ordinarily a vagrant and thus not likely to be picky, was also having his inhibitions severely impaired by the alcohol. Alcohol also dulls your sense of taste, and he was being actively poisoned by people who wanted to kill him. You'd at least have to hope he didn't know he was drinking methanol or rat poison. Besides, as we stated above, the piker doesn't explain the how. How did these men eat things that would kill any ordinary man, or in Tarari's case, eat things that would be physically impossible to eat, lethal or no? In Latito's case, doctors determined his stomach lining was harder than usual and his digestive acid stronger than usual. But this doesn't explain Tarari. It was apparently able to eat a box containing a message without that digesting, whereas if Latito did the same, he wouldn't have been able to physically eat it, but would have been able to digest it. And this doesn't touch Mike Malloy's case. And we are, by the way, going to be leaving out the fact that he survived being frozen in a snowbank and hit by a speeding car. As entertaining and as incredible as that is, it's not really relevant. Now, we do have another case specifically to contrast with Torari from the other side of the War of the First Coalition, to begin with at least, Charles Domery. Born Karel Domerz in Poland in 1778, he had an unusually large appetite as a child and as a man. Unlike Tarari, though, his eating habits, which weren't quite as extreme, didn't affect his body. He was taller than average, six foot three, of a normal build. His eyes were lively and clear, as opposed to Tarari's watery and bloodshot eyes. His tongue and teeth were relatively clean compared to Terari's mouth, which could be more accurately described as a moor. His pulse and body temperature were normal, again compared to Tarare's steam-producing, hot-to-the-touch skin. As not to say that all was well with Mr. Domery. He defected from the Prussians to the French after the Prussians couldn't continue to feed him, and like Tarare, they found this fascinating and studied him. What the Prussians and the French found was this. Immediately after going to bed, usually around 8 o'clock, he would start sweating profusely. After several hours, he would fall asleep before waking up around 1 in the morning with a great hunger, no matter what he'd eaten before bed. He would then eat any food available, and if none was, he would smoke tobacco, and unlike Tarari, this seemed to help. Around 2am, he'd go back to sleep and wake up again between 5 and 6am, sweating heavily. The moment he got out of bed, the sweating would stop, only to start again whenever he started eating. So, not usual, then. He did also have a knack for eating odd, even repulsive things. He ate 174 cats in a single year, but not the skin and bones, and ate four to five pounds of grass every day if he couldn't otherwise find his sustenance. When serving as a sailor aboard the Hoche, later renamed the HMS Donegal, he even tried to eat a comrade's severed leg shot off by a cannonball before somebody pulled it out of his mouth. Unsurprisingly, perhaps he preferred his meat raw to cooked. Now, as I mentioned, the Hosh was captured by the British in 1798, and Domery was interned in a prisoner-of-war camp near Liverpool. The guards were amazed at his appetite, and because of the convention that prisoner-of-war rations were paid for by the country for whom they served, they agreed to increase his rations, starting off on double but ending up giving him the food of 10 men a day. So, taking the standard French prisoner-of-war ration and multiplying them, we get a daily average ration of seven kilograms of bread two kilograms of vegetables half a kilogram of butter and nearly two kilograms of cheese when this wasn't enough he'd eat a prison cat and 20 rats that strayed too close to his cell also like Tarari, he ate medicine unaffected and when his beer ration rang out he drank dirty water to wash down his food so of course the british found this fascinating and studied him doctors J Johnson and Cochrane of the Navy's POW Board and Royal Edinburgh College of Physicians, respectively, arranged an experiment. On one day, at four AM he was given four pounds of raw cow udder. He ate that with no complaint or hesitation. At nine thirty AM he was given five pounds of beef, twelve large tallow candles equaling one pound in weight, and a bottle of porter, a beer similar to stout. All consumed. At 1pm he was given the same, another 5 pounds of beef, pound of candles, but this time 3 bottles of porter, all consumed. Throughout the course of this he did not defecate, urinate or vomit, and his pulse and body temperature remained normal. At 6.15 he went back to his cell, and was described as being in good cheer, dancing, smoking his pipe and having another bottle of porter. But no conclusions could be drawn from this, all we know is that in one day he ate ten pounds of beef, four pounds of raw cow udder, two pounds of candles, and drank at least five bottles of beer. We don't know what happened to him after his internment. He vanishes from the records. Now let's get on to some theories. The first is polyphagia, but it should be noted that this is a symptom, not a cause. Polyphagia, as the name implies, is the desire to eat anything often manifesting in unusual appetites. It does have several purported causes, which we will get into frontotemporal dementia, type 1 diabetes, Graves disease, prada willi syndrome, a whole host of other physical and mental problems have been linked with it. Damage to the amygdala or problems with the thyroid gland are also potential causes. Let's look first at prada willi syndrome. It's caused by a deficiency of chromosome 15 and those affected are constantly hungry, leading them to often be obese and develop diabetes. Affecting 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 30,000 people, the condition can manifest in physical differences as well. Those affected by prada syndrome, who often referred to as PWS, often have light skin and hair, like Tarari and Charles D'Omery, small hands and feet, mild to moderate intellectual impairment and impotence. But unlike the two we mentioned, sufferers are also usually short in stature. That said, the following are also symptoms at various stages of a person's life. Excessive sleeping or sleep disorders, hyperphagia, Extreme flexibility, soft skin, thin lips, low muscle tone, amongst others. Sound familiar? That said, the condition also features mental issues. Lower than average intelligence is a common feature for sufferers of PWS, as are developmental issues arising in childhood that can lead to things like stubbornness, temper tantrums, controlling, or even manipulative behaviour. None of those fit the profile of either Tarari or Domery, and again, doesn't explain Mike Malloy. He had no history of extreme eating prior to the plot to kill him inadvertently revealing his seeming imperviousness to internal damage. So we turn to another possible explanation. Hyperthyroidism. This condition is a result of an excessive production of thyroid hormones from the thyroid gland, responsible usually for your metabolism, how you digest food and turn it into energy, which then goes to muscle growth and bodily development. Signs and symptoms of hyperthyroidism include irritability, Muscle weakness, a fast heartbeat, sleeping problems, higher than usual body temperature, excessive sweating, diarrhea, hand tremors, and weight loss. Sounds a lot like our buddy Tarare, doesn't it? Hyperthyroidism can be caused by a few things, most commonly Graves' disease, an autoimmune condition whose exact cause is unknown. One common version of Graves' disease features bulging eyes, and the condition itself has some notable sufferers. Roddy Dangerfield, Marty Feldman, who both used their eyes in their comedy, Missy Elliott, Dame Maggie Smith, Wendy Williams, and the late president George H.W. Bush and his wife Barbara. But none of those people were anything near like Tarare, or even lesser cases like Dumari or Latito. And again, we're no closer to cracking old Iron Mike the Juggernaut. Perhaps then Terari was an extreme case of hypothyroidism, or several factors like PWS and hypothyroidism? I don't even know if that's possible. Then you can have genetic mutation, which could be the cause simple or as complicated as that. A random genetic mutation could cause you to develop an unusually strong internal lining, unusually strong digestive acids, or a new resilience to certain poisons or all of those. But that's the sort of explanation that's inherently unsatisfying because you can just kind of throw it out there and you can't really prove or disprove it without genetically testing those affected. And we don't have samples for any of our cases, except I guess for Latito if you disinterred him. So maybe Mike Malloy was just that durable, or maybe Tarare was just that hungry. But again, not a satisfying explanation. Finally, there is also the very strong possibility, and I know some of you listeners will have had this in your minds the entire time, that these stories are made up or exaggerated. And I would tend to agree, especially with the historical stories, Terrari's exploits, if they hadn't been at least partially verified by the French military, would be unbelievable. And if he had merely been a street performer, I'd very much doubt their authenticity. Part of the reason that the juggernaut, as he was also known, amongst his other cool nicknames, was exhumed and re-examined, was because the police in New York had caught wind of the death of Iron Mike the Durable. He was a tall tale in New York even before he died in the month or so in 1933 when this happened. The only one that's not exaggerated is Letito, and he wasn't nearly as extreme as the others. Sure, he ate things that would kill an ordinary man or make you very sick, but he did so in small quantities over long periods of time with lubricants to help it down the way. Despite their now less-than-Sterling reputation, the Guinness Book of World Records verified his eating habits, so we know at least they're kind of true. And, given he had no digestive problems, he must have had stomach acid like Greek fire, so we've kind of got an idea of why he was able to do what he did. I think ultimately what we need to accept is that there's no one solution that solves all of these problems. Tarare was a specific case, Mike Malloy was a specific case, Domari and Latito were specific cases. All of them had, aside from their desires and abilities to consume copious quantities of food and drink that would seriously harm someone, very little in common. Even in cases with commonalities like Terari and Domari, there were also big differences. So maybe then we just need to accept that at least for the historical cases, we may never know the answer. And if you know me, that's a bitter pill to swallow. It. So what's the lesson we can learn here? What's the takeaway? I've been quite restrained this episode with my jokes, to be honest. It isn't that you are what you eat. Sure, your habits can tell you a lot about what kind of a person you are, but in this case there seems to be a staunch divide between the people's habits and their personalities. Malloy was able to ingest seriously toxic substances, like massive amounts of alcohol, methylated spirits, chemicals, even poison. Sometimes he was a surly drunk, other times a chipper man, grateful for free drinks. Tarari seemed troubled by his condition, Numerous times he tried to fix himself, but seemed unable to. One imagines, I suppose, a rather sad man whose eating habits, whilst thoroughly grotesque, were also not under his control. Dommery seemed, for the most part, to be pleasant and affable, full of life and happiness. It's just that he could eat for ten men, and Letito was a performer. Whilst as a child he was diagnosed with a compulsion for eating strange and inedible things, they turned out, for him somehow, to be edible, and he made a living out of it. All of those cases, though, are different. Sure, they all fall under the auspices of today's episode title, Hard to Swallow, but they lack a single defining thread that would offer one explanation for all of them. I also should point out that it's important not to treat these people like some kind of a freak show. Sure, in some cases, like Monsieur Mongetou, they want you to. They make their living out of it. But in other cases, like poor old Terrari, they're seemingly plagued with the shame and the guilt of having to act like a human trash compactor. Perhaps, given his later desire to cure himself, Tarare knew of what people must have said of him when they saw him fighting dogs in the gutter over a scrap of butcher's waste. How humiliating that was, how shameful, how base and low. And yet so compelled by hunger was he, something he had no control over, that he would eat and eat and eat and eat. We don't even know if he ate that baby. If he did do it, it's indefensible, to be certain. But if he didn't do it, then everybody just assumed that he did, because in their eyes he was a massive, repulsive monster. He lived a sad, lonely life and died a sad, lonely death. Michael Malloy's story is much more fun to tell. Sure, they killed him in the end, but the bad guys got their comeuppance almost immediately, and hearing of their fruitless attempts to kill him get more and more convoluted is kind of funny. When he eventually beefed it, Malloy was a local legend, and his story sealed the fates of his killers. Similarly, aside from his constant hunger, Domarese seemed to be kind of fine most of his life. People liked him. He was affable and friendly. Took the experiments on him in good stride, happy for the beer they were giving him to wash it all down with. So again, we're back to the central thesis here. Each case is different. Tararese is sad. Malloy's is funny. Domarese is curious. Latito's is record-breaking. All of those have elements of each, I suppose. No matter how sad his condition, the mental image of a man with a dozen eggs in his cheeks is kind of funny. Michael Malloy's attempts to dodge death did fail in the end. Dummery, despite his cheer, was driven to eating rats off the floor. Latito's is just the story of his life. He was a man defined in many ways by what he ate. So there you have it. This week's lesson, don't go assuming that things are similar or the same. A horse of another colour. Correlation doesn't equal causation, etc, etc, etc. We've said that before, but it is important to remember. Judging a book by its cover is an exercise in foolishness. And so, we close the book, for now at least, on people with iron stomachs. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting from Wizard Studios and music from productioncrate.com. Go to productioncrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod and support us on Patreon at Demystified by Ashley Styles. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.